Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Well, among the considerable clutter in my office, several shelves above a waddle of rubber ducks sits a game spinner, kind of a homemade Wheel of Fortune thing. It's a souvenir from a clergy roast to raise money for Camp Mitchell back in Arkansas, which is where our own Sims Schneider and Lucy Cochran happened to be this past week. But as these celebrity-studded occasions often do, I'm pretty sure the event raised something in the high three figures that night. Our friend Jay was my roaster, And he started off by saying, a lot of you probably wonder where Scott gets his sermon ideas. Well, I broke into his office the other day and found this, at which he produced the spinner. Now, instead of dollar amounts, however, the wheels sections are carpentry, Ardell, carpentry, Alden, carpentry, Kate, woodworking, riff on one word from the gospel, carpentry, dog, carpentry. So I said, here's how it works, I think, and gave the wheel a spin, and it landed on surprise carpentry. So, Jay said, this sermon might begin like this. The other day, I was installing wainscoting with an 18-gauge brad nailer and construction adhesive, and there was a depression in the wall, and as I was pushing on the board, trying to nail it down, I thought, you know, life's a lot like this sometimes, isn't it? Then he said, okay, let's try another. And he gave the wheel a second spin, and this time it landed on Ardell. And Jay said, so here's how this one might go. The other day I was talking to Ardell while I was installing wainscoting with an 18-gauge brad nailer and construction adhesive. Preachers. Ours is one of the few professions in which there's actually a regularly scheduled time and place for us to pass on the mantle of our wisdom to a room full of people. And we like to think we have salient and edifying things to say on all kinds of important matters, both the sacred and the profane. That old saw about most of us having just one sermon that we keep preaching versions of week after week is probably closer to the truth. And apparently some of us may only have one sermon illustration as well. But there's another illusion I think we preachers entertain more than most people. And that's that the most important things we have to pass on to one another can really be spoken adequately at all. That we can pass on the truth or the gospel or anything that matters most to our lives just by what we say, just by talking. So, since I am a preacher, I'm going to try to talk about that. I'm going to try to talk about how the most important things God has made each of us to pass on to one another can't be passed on just by talking. And not only that, the deepest parts of ourselves, maybe our greatest gifts for the world, may remain mysteries even to ourselves. And even the mystery of how and whether we pass them on may remain beyond us. You don't have to be terribly religious or biblically literate to have heard that the prophet Elijah was taken up in a flaming chariot coming for to carry him home, as the old spiritual says. 
that this happened when Elijah was actively passing on his mantle to his prophetic understudy, Elisha, is less widely known. But that's the story we just read, isn't it? I love it when a story begins with a wait what? You know what I mean? And today it's, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, wait, what? (laughs) Who just drops a detail like that in so nonchalantly and then moves on? Just casually sets up the story as if the two prophets were walking to the 7-Eleven for Slurpees. But the setup reinforces the point that the story's not about how Elijah gets to heaven. That's just one spectacular detail among others. The point is this passing on of his mantle. The passing on of his spirit, his power, his ministry among God's people And it's as if the storyteller doesn't want us to get too distracted by the chariot bit, so he tells us about it right up front. Well, there really are plenty of other unbelievable details here. Elijah's mantle, you may know, is is his garment, it's his cloak. And I don't know about you, but I always think of Linus when I read that he somehow wraps it up like a staff and strikes the Jordan River, putting that really impressive Moses impersonation. Remember how Linus could make anything his blanket into anything he needed? Clearly more confirmation, Linus was a great prophet too. But but these Moses-like details have been piling up on Elijah. Remember last week when he wrapped the same mantle around his face as he stood at the entrance of a cave while the presence of God passed by in the sheer silence. That was the cave on the same mountain where God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock while God's glory passed by and made the prophet's face shine. So experiencing the presence of God and not dying. Parting a body of water and passing over on dry land. These aren't random literary coincidences. Telling us that these are the rarest sorts of prophets who have experienced the rarest kinds of miraculous and terrifying things. We can see maybe why these two are the ones who show up on the mountain with Jesus at the transfiguration. But what could a story like this one have to do with lives like yours and mine? I don't know about you, but I'm not even like the 50 lesser prophets who got to watch Elijah's little Prince of Egypt reenactment. I've never seen such a thing, have you? But just as Israel's status as God's people was meant to be for the blessing of the whole world, I truly believe that anyone with some astonishing experience or gift in the Bible only has these for the benefits of the rest of us somehow. It's never enough for special effects just to set somebody apart as special, not in Scripture. And here's what's standing out for me as I return to this strange old story with the ordinary particulars of my life today. Impressive as Elijah's Moses-like prophetic superpowers are to us, they remain a mystery to him. They're not entirely within his control either, are they? He's, he's, not as, he's not as sure at all that he can pass them on to Elisha. Elisha says, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. And Elijah, who's just parted a river with his coat, says, you have asked a hard thing. We'll just have to see. Apparently the great gift he bears to the world isn't something he understands enough to pass it reliably on himself. I've been reading a book 
by a sociologist named Richard Sennett, titled The Craftsman. And in it, he explores how knowledge gets passed on in everything from medieval goldsmith guilds to the Linux community of open-source computer programmers, if you can believe that. But one of his most fascinating case studies is the Stradivarius violin shop. You don't have to be a musician to know there's nothing quite like a Stradivarius to string players. And you may know that for more than three centuries now, not just luthiers, but scientists have been trying to crack the mystery of what makes a Stradivarius so special. Antonio Stradivari's workshop probably looked a lot like other luthier shops of his time. It would have been a place where apprentices and journeymen worked and lived. The shop would have buzzed with activity from dawn till dusk. The unmarried apprentices sleeping under their benches at night on beds of straw. Stradivari's own sons would have been expected to do the very same thing. The youngest apprentices would soak wood for bending, make rough cuts. Journeymen shaped the instrument bellies and assembled the necks. The master himself took over the ultimate assembly and the varnishing. So there were dozens and dozens of hands that took part in crafting Stradivarius instruments over the decades that Antonio was master of the shop. But here's the mystery. When Antonio Stradivari died, so did some irreplaceable aspect of the Stradivarius violin. For all the overt and tacit passing on of knowledge and technique that took a place among all those luthiers for all those years, Antonio Stradivari was somehow conveying something as he wandered around among them overseeing their work that even he didn't understand. He possessed some knowledge that even he didn't know how to pass along. His sons, Ambono and Francesco, never married, spent their entire adult lives as the servant heirs of their father. They inherited the operation upon his death and traded on the Stradivarius name for a few years, but the business soon foundered. And no one's quite built a true Stradivarius since. Now, there are several ways to read that story. The most obvious one's kind of depressing. If even Antonio Stradivari can't pass on the mantle of his genius, what can any of us hope to pass on of worth to the people we encounter and then on to the world? Elisha did end up inheriting the double portion of Elijah's spirit, parting that river again to get back over. But even his ministry was very different from his elders, and he wasn't invited to the transfiguration, you might remember. That's the negative reading. But what if we take a step back and ask whether God ever intended for each of us to be in control of our gifts? What if there's an important humility before the mystery of who you are and what you have to offer to the world? And an implicit reminder in these stories that the particular mantle, the particular genius of who you are, is meant to be offered as an embodied whole in real time, as your life, to the world and to the people around you. And because this is so, maybe we should be humbler and more open to what God will actually do with what you let go of through your life. And maybe a little less certain of what your gift will look like when it shows up in the life of somebody else. I think this is why for each spectacular thing that happened that day when the Lord was about to take Elijah up in a whirlwind, at least today, 
what I'm hearing is his humility. You ask a hard thing, he says to Elisha. We'll just have to see. Maybe implicit in that hesitation is also the truth that God has never been about keeping some perfect version of what it means to be human or some singular version of what it means to be faithful alive in the world. When Jesus described the reign of God, it wasn't as some fixed inheritance, but to be preserved and passed on intact. He said it was like a few mustard seeds exploding into a bush full of birds or a little bit of yeast blowing up a loaf of bread like a balloon. He told his followers that they and we would do even greater things than he'd done when he was gone. He said he was leaving not clear Christian operating instructions or even a fixed set of holy scriptures, but a holy spirit who would work within and among us and lead us into all sorts of new life and new possibilities. What we also know is that when people have been absolutely certain, they know exactly what the capital T truth is that they were meant to pass along. Or certain they know exactly what justice with the capital J looks in every single situation. We've too often done great damage to one another and to this world. The biblical model from Moses to Elijah to Elisha, from Mary to Elizabeth, and on down through the stories of our faith is this lineage of people who brought their whole embodied selves to the world and offered them to the purposes of God. Purposes of which they might have gotten great glimpses, but had no illusions of being in control of. And I'd even include Jesus among those who wondered humbly about how what they passed on would actually play out in lives he didn't control. Which in the end is why these strange ancient people are still my heroes. I hope they're still some of yours. Not for their magical powers and mind-blowing visions, but for the way they humbly offer the particular gifts and experiences of their lives to the world. And then let them take hold as they will in lives that are not their own, in ways they can't predict or control, but maybe in the ways God knows this world truly needs. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.